Section two of the Old Peabody Pew, a Christmas romance of a country church by Kate Douglas Wiggin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter two. The old meeting house wore an animated aspect when the eventful Friday came, a cold, brilliant, sparkling December day, with good slang and with energy in every breath that swept over the dazzling snowfields. The sexton had built a fire in the furnace on the way to his morning work, a fire so economically contrived that it would last exactly the four or five necessary hours, and not a second more. At eleven o'clock all the pillars of the society had assembled, having finished their own household work, and laid out on their respective kitchen tables comfortable luncheons for the men of the family, if they were fortunate enough to number any among their luxuries. Water was heated upon oil stoves set about here and there, and there was a brave array of scrubbing brushes, claws, soap, and even sand and soda, for it had been decided, and manifested by the usual sign, and no contrary minded, and it was a vote, that the dirt was to come off, whether the paint came with it or not. Each of the fifteen women present selected a block of seats, preferably one in which her own was situated, and all fell busily to work. There is nobody here to clean the right-wing pews, said Nancy Wentworth, so I will take those for my share. You're not making a very wise choice, Nancy, and the minister's wife smiled as she spoke. The infant class of the Sunday school sits there, you know, and I expect the paint has had extra wear and tear. Families don't seem to occupy those pews regularly nowadays. I can remember when every seat in the whole church was filled. Wings and all, mused Mrs. Sargent, wringing out her washcloth in a reminiscent mood. The one in front of you, Nancy, was always called the Deef Pew in the old times, and all the folks that was hard of hearing used to congregate there. The next pew hasn't been occupied since I came here, said the minister's wife. No, answered Mrs. Sargent, glad of any opportunity to retail neighborhood news. Squire Bean's folks have moved to Portland to be with the married daughter. Somebody has to stay with her, and her husband won't. The squire ain't a strong man, and he's most too old to go to meetin' now. The youngest son has just died in New York, so I hear. What ailed him? inquired Maria Sharp. I guess he was completely wore out taking care of his health, returned Mrs. Sargent. He had a splendid constitution from a boy, but he was always afraid it wouldn't last him. The seat back of Squire Beans is the old Peabody pew. Ain't that the Peabody pew you're scrubbing, Nancy? I believe so, Nancy answered, never pausing in her labors. It's so long since anybody sat there, it's hard to remember. It is the Peabody's, I know it, because the aisle runs right up facing it. I can see old Deacon Peabody settin' in this end same as if twas yesterday. He had died before Jerry and I came back here to live, said Mrs. Burbank. First I remember, Justin Peabody sat in the end seat. The sister that died next, and in the corner against the wall, Mrs. Peabody, with a crepe shawl and a palm-leaf fan. They were a handsome family. You used to sit with them sometimes, Nancy. Esther was great friends with you. Yes, she was, Nancy replied, lifting the tattered cushion from its place and brushing it, and I with her. What is the use of scrubbing and carpeting when there are only twenty pew cushions and six hassocks in the whole church, and most of them ragged? How can I ever mend this? I shouldn't trouble myself to darn other people's cushions. This unchristian sentiment came in Mrs. Miller's ringing tones from the rear of the church. I don't know why, argued Maria Sharp. I'm going to mend my Aunt Asha's cushion, and we haven't spoken for years. 
but hers is the next pew to mine and i'm going to have my part of the church look decent even if she is too stingy to do her share besides there aren't any peabodys left to do their own darning and nancy was friends with esther yes it's nothing more than right nancy replied with a note of relief in her voice considering esther though we don't belong to the scrubbing sex there is one peabody alive as you know if you stop to think maria for justin's alive and living out west somewheres least he's as much alive as ever he was he was as good as dead when he was twenty-one but his mother was always too soft-hearted to bury him there was considerable laughter over the sally of the outspoken mrs sargent whose keen wit was the delight of the neighborhood i know he's alive and doing business in detroit for i got his address a week or ten days ago and wrote ask him if he'd like to give a couple of dollars toward repairing the old church everybody looked at mrs burbank with interest hasn't he answered asked maria sharp nancy wentworth held her breath turned her face to the wall and silently wiped the paint of the wainscoting the blood that had rushed into her cheeks at mrs sargent's jeering reference to justin peabody still lingered there for anyone who ran to read but fortunately nobody ran they were too busy scrubbing not yet folks don't hurry about answering when you ask them for a contribution replied the president with a cynicism common to persons who collect funds for charitable purposes george wickham sent me twenty-five cents from denver when i wrote him a receipt i said thank you same as aunt polly did when the neighbors brought her a piece of beef ever so much obliged but don't forget me when you come to kill a pig now mrs baxter you shan't clean jane bruce's pew or what was his before he turned second advent i'll do that myself or he used to be in my sunday school class he's the backbone o that congregation now asserted mrs sargent and they say he's going to marry mrs sam peters who sings in their choir as soon as his year is up they make a perfect fool of him in that church you can't make a fool of a man that nature ain't begun with argued mrs brewster jim bruce was never very strong-minded and i declare it seems to me that when men lose their wives they lose their wits i was sure jim would marry hannah thompson that keeps house for him i suspected she was looking out for a life job when she hired out with him hannah thompson may keep jim's house but she'll never keep jim that's for certain that's certain affirmed the president and i can't see that mrs peters will better herself much i don't blame her for one came in no uncertain terms from the left-wing pews and the widow buzel rose from her knees and approached the group by the pulpit if there's anything duller than cooking three meals a day for yourself and settin down and eatin em by yourself and then gettin up and clearin em away after yourself i'd like to know i shouldn't want any good-lookin pleasant-spoken man to offer himself to me without he expected to be snapped up that's all but if you made out to get one husband in your county you can thank the lord and not expect any favors i used to think tom was poor company and complain i couldn't have any conversation with him but land i could talk at him and there's considerable comfort in that and i could pick up after him now every room in my house is clean and every closet and bureau drawer too i can't start drawing in another rug for i've got all the rugs i can step foot on i dried so many apples last year i shan't need to cut up any this season my jelly and preserves ain't out and there i am and there most of us are in this village without a man to take steps for and trot round after there's just three husbands among the fifteen women scrubbing here now 
and the rest of us is old maids and widders. No wonder the men folks die or move away like Justin Peabody. Place with such a mess of women folks ain't healthy to live in. Whatever Lobelia Brewster may say. Chapter 3 Justin Peabody had once faithfully struggled with the practical difficulties of life in Edgewood, or so he had thought, in those old days of which Nancy Wentworth was thinking as she wiped the paint of the Peabody pew. Work in the mills did not attract him. He had no capital to invest in a stock of goods for storekeeping. School teaching offered him only a pittance. There remained then only the farm, if he were to stay at home and keep his mother company. Justin don't seem to take no hold to things, said the neighbors. Good heavens, it seemed to him that there were no things to take hold of. That was his first thought. Later he grew to think that the trouble all lay in himself, and both thoughts bred weakness. The farm had somehow supported the family in the old deacon's time, but Justin seemed unable to coax a competence from the soil. He could and did rise early and work late, till the earth, sow crops, but he did not make the rainfall nor the sunshine at the times he needed them, and the elements, however much they might seem to favor his neighbors, seldom smiled on his enterprises. The crows liked Justin's corn better than any other in Edgewood. It had a richness peculiar to itself, a quality that appealed to the most jaded palate, so it was really worth while to fly over a mile of intervening fields and pay it the delicate compliment of preference. Justin could explain the attitude of caterpillars, worms, grasshoppers, and potato bugs toward him only by assuming that he attracted them as the magnet in the toy boxes attracts the miniature fishes. Land of liberty, look at em congregated, ejaculated Jabe Slocum when he was called in for consultation. Now, if you'd gone in for breeding insects, you could be as proud as Cuffy and exhibit em at the county fair. They'd give you prizes for size and numbers and speed, I guess. Why, well, say, they're real crowded for room. The plants ain't give em enough leaves to roost on. Have you tried bug death? It acts like a tonic on them, said Justin gloomily. Show, you don't say so. Now mine can't abide the sight nor smell of it. What about Paris Green? They thrive on it. It's as good as an appetizer. Well, said Jabe Slocum, revolving the quid of tobacco in his mouth reflectively, the bug that ain't got no objection to poison is a bug that's always got a way of thinking and feeling and reasoning that I ain't able to cope with. Perhaps it's all a leading of providence. Maybe it shows you ought to quit farming crops and take to raising livestock. Justin did that, as a matter of fact, a year or two later, but stock that has within itself the power of being live has also rare qualifications for being dead when occasion suits, and it generally did suit Justin's stock. It proved prone not only to all the general diseases that cattle flesh is heir to, but was capable even of suicide. At least it is true that two valuable Jersey calves tied to stakes at the hillside had flung themselves violently down the bank and strangled themselves with their own ropes in a manner which seemed to show that they found no pleasure in existence, at all events on the Peabody farm. These were some of the little tragedies that had sickened young Justin Peabody with life in Edgewood, and Nancy Wentworth, even then, realized some of them and sympathized without speaking, in a girl's poor, helpless way. Mrs. Simpson had washed the floor in the right wing of the church, and Nancy had cleaned all the paint. Now she sat in the old Peabody pew, darning the forlorn, faded cushion with gray carpet thread, thread as gray as our own life. The scrubbing party had moved to its labors in a far corner of the church, 
and two of the women were beginning preparations for the basket luncheons nancy's needle was no busier than her memory long years ago she had often sat in the peabody pew sometimes at first as a girl of sixteen when asked by esther and then on coming home from school at eighteen finished she had been invited now and again by mrs peabody herself on those sundays when her own invalid mother had not attended service those were wonderful sundays sundays of quiet trembling peace and maiden joy justin sat beside her and she had been sure then but had long since grown to doubt the evidence of her senses that he too vibrated with pleasure at the nearness was there not a summer morning when his hand touched her white lace mitt as they held the hymn-book together in the lines of the rise my soul and stretch thy wings thy better portion trace became blurred on the page and melted into something indistinguishable for a full minute or two afterward were there not looks and looks and looks or had she some misleading trick of vision in those days justin's dark handsome profile rose before her the level brows and the fine lashes the well-cut nose and lovable mouth the peabody mouth and chin somewhat too sweet and pliant for strength perhaps then the eyes turned to hers in the old way just for a fleeting glance as they had so often at prayer meeting or sociable or sunday service was it not a man's heart she had seen in them and oh if she could only be sure that her own woman's heart had not looked out from hers drawn from its maiden shelter in spite of all her wish to keep it hidden then followed two dreary years of indecision and suspense when justin's eyes met hers less freely when his looks were always gloomy and anxious when affairs at the peabody farm grew worse and worse when his mother followed her husband the old deacon and her daughter esther to the burying ground in the churchyard then the end of all things came the end of the world for nancy justin's departure for the west in a very frenzy of discouragement over the narrowness and limitation and injustice of his lot over the rockiness and barrenness and unkindness of the new england soil over the general bitterness of fate and the bludgeonings of chance he was a failure born of a family of failures if the world owed him a living he had yet to find the method by which it could be earned all this he thought and uttered and much more of the same sort in these days of humbled pride self was paramount though it was the self he despised there was no time for love who was he for a girl to lean upon he who could not stand erect himself he bade a stiff good-bye to his neighbors and to nancy he vowed safe little more a handshake with no thrill of love in it such as as might have furnished her palm at least some memories to dwell upon a few stilted words of leave-taking a halting meaningless sentence or two about his botch of life then he walked away from the wentworth doorstep but halfway down the garden path where the shriveled hollyhocks stood like sentinels did a wave of something different sweep over him a wave of the boyish irresponsible past when his heart had wings and could fly without fear to its mate a wave of the past that was rushing through nancy's mind well nigh bearing her in its bitter-sweet waters for he lifted his head and suddenly retracing his steps he came back to her and taking her hand again said forlornly you'll see me back when my luck turns nancy nancy knew that the words might mean little or much according to the manner in which they were uttered but to her hurt pride and sore shamed woman instinct they were a promise simply because there was a choking sound in justin's voice and tears in justin's eyes 
you'll see me back when my luck turns nancy this was the phrase upon which she had lived for more than ten years nancy had once heard the old parson say ages ago that the whole purpose of life was the growth of the soul that we eat sleep clothe ourselves work love all to give the soul another day month year in which to develop she used to wonder if her soul could be growing in the monotonous round of her dull duties and her duller pleasures she did not confess it even to herself nevertheless she knew that she worked ate slept to live until justin's luck turned her love had lain in her heart a bird without a song year after year her mother had dwelt by her side and never guessed her father too and both were dead the neighbors also lynx-eyed and curious had never suspected if she had suffered no one in edgewood was any wiser for the maiden heart is not commonly worn on the sleeve in new england if she had been openly pledged to justin peabody she could have waited twice ten years with a decent show of self-respect for long engagements were viewed rather as a matter of course in that neighborhood the endless months had gone on since that gray november day when justin had said good-bye it had been just before thanksgiving and she went to church with an aching and ungrateful heart parson read from the eighth chapter of st matthew a most unexpected selection for that holiday if you can't find anything else to be thankful for he cried go home and be thankful you are not a leper nancy took the drastic counsel away from the church with her and it was many a year before she could manage to add to this slender store anything to increase her gratitude for mercies given though all the time she was outwardly busy cheerful and helpful justin had once come back to edgewood and it was the bitterest drop in her cup of bitterness that she was spending that winter in berwick where so the neighbors told him she was the great favorite in society and was receiving much attention from gentlemen so that she had never heard of his visit until the spring had come again parted friends did not keep up with one another's affairs by means of epistolary communication in those days in edgewood was not the custom spoken words were difficult enough to justin peabody and written words were quite impossible especially if they were to be used to define his half-conscious desires and his fluctuations of will or to recount his disappointments and discouragements and mistakes end of section two